0: Hello, and welcome to the second Mosaic podcast. I'm your host, John Monahan, and I'm the Executive Director of the Mosaic Institute. My guest today is an old friend of the Mosaic Institute, Shauna Sylvester. Currently, Shauna Sylvester is a fellow at the Simon Fraser University, Morris J. Wask Centre for Dialogue, and the Executive Director of Carbon Talks, a national initiative focused on increasing Canada's global competitiveness by shifting to a low-carbon economy. Prior to leading Carbon Talks, Shauna served as the founding director of Canada's World, a national citizen engagement initiative on foreign policy. Shauna sat down with me in her office in Vancouver on the day following her participation in a U of Mosaic event at Simon Fraser University in March 2013. Delighted to be back with you in Vancouver, and uh, for those that are listening, last night Shauna was one of three panelists at a session on Canada's role in the world, Canada's role in the world with respect to peace specifically, along with Paul Mayer of Simon Fraser, formerly of the Department of Foreign Affairs here in Canada, and uh, uh, Dr. Eva Busa, who's now with the the Asia-Pacific Foundation, but formerly was Director of Strategic Policy for Ban Ki-moon at the UN. What would you say, for those that are listening, um, what would you say is Canada's global reputation today in terms of peace and peacemaking and peace building and peacekeeping and all facets of peace?
1: I think that's a it's a difficult question to answer easily. Um, I, I hearken back to a story from a uh, before I started Canada's World, and it was really the impetus for starting Canada's World. And I was in Sri Lanka at the time, working there on a peace and reconciliation project, and some friends of mine had just come back from the human rights meetings in Geneva, and as well some environmental meetings that were happening. And they said, Canada's got a new nickname. And I said, oh yeah, what what is that? And I was sort of, as a Canadian, whenever we talk globally, I get quite proud, right? I, oh, what's that? And they said, it's Shrub. Now, this was way back in 2000, I guess it was 2007, 2008, and I said, shrub, what does that mean? And they said, well, you were the insignificant plant that adorned the conference room corner uh, that never said anything, but then when you did say something, you were a little bush. You can look at almost any major environmental initiative globally, and you'll see Canada behind it. Where are we now? We've received the fossil of the Year Award for our stands on climate change. We have abdicated our responsibility, I would argue, on global climate change issues. Uh, on almost every environmental issue, we our scientists are silenced. So, we're not leading on environment anymore. We're not leading on peace. Uh, we're not leading on human rights. An area where Canada led, and I was very proud of what Canada had done around uh, gender issues. We were, mm-hmm. it was an area that we Around child poverty and then gender and gender health, uh, gender and um, equality issues. Um, and we would see Canada often play a role in peacekeeping missions in terms of building or providing a r- support to women in the reconstruction re- and reconciliation processes. Again, there is some work that's happened, certainly around the G8 there was money put towards maternal, maternal health care, but uh, for the most part we've, we haven't been focused you know, on gender issues either. It's not an area where Canada is well known for its contributions. Where Canada is known for its contributions now is really around banking regulation. Uh, I think that we have done some good work in terms of the banking regulation. I think that that we have been um, a player at the G8 table uh, Mm -hmm. by hosting the G8 and also by being a part of the G8 community, we've maintained our our position there. And we we did some interesting things around supporting social finance at at the G8 meetings uh, that we hosted and in Korea. But beyond that, I'm not sure. We've abandoned our positions on the Middle East. Our our policies on the Middle East have changed. We've Mm -hmm. taken a kind of Israel-only policy rather than a two-state solution, which we always advocated. I think we have done a good job at, at performing well with NATO around Afghanistan. We did, mm-hmm. we sort of more than kept up our share of responsibility on NATO, but I'm not sure where NATO fits into the whole foreign policy. One of the things I'm not sure of is what our foreign policy is. Or
0: do you think that, would you agree that the time is long overdue for whatever party is in power to uh, carefully articulate? What Canada's foreign policy is, or should we be able to decipher it from from both what has been said and done and what has not been said and done? So almost by, by uh, negative inference, we can tell what Canada's foreign policy is. And indeed, we are a fundamentally different country than we used to be.
1: We are a fundamentally co- different country than we w- used to be. And yet, I- ironically, we are among the most globally connected populations in the world. So at a time when we have some of the strongest global connections, I would say that that we have withdrawn substantially in the international arena and, and playing a, um, an important role in that arena. And, and, and a perfect example of that is, you know, we're so irrelevant now that we can't even get a, a seat at the Security Council. I mean, we, we were bypassed on that front. We didn't get a seat. But I think the question of whether or not there should be a well-articulated foreign policy, I think that... that There needs to be debate and discussion about foreign policy. There needs to be recognition about Canada's role in the world. There needs to be a way in which we formulate policy that isn't through the media. We shouldn't be having to listen to media reports to determine where we stand on issues. I think that there needs to be an engagement with the Canadian population on what is our role in the world. Uh, So does that that equal a well-articulated foreign policy? I would not want to see a well-articulated foreign policy without some kind of consultation, hmm. especially if it abandons so much of what we've held strong uh, and what we as Canadians believe our position in the world should be. Um, I would really like to see an engagement in this country, and, and then I would like to see a more, a, more um, a clear statement of what we're doing.
0: What role would you see, or do you see, for civil society in Canada broadly defined in terms of helping to articulate more plainly what Canada's foreign policy priorities are. And you're a good person to ask because, in fact you're a great person to ask, because a common thread throughout so much of your work, whether through your former NGO, uh, the Institute for Media Policy and Civil Society or Impacts, or your work with Canada's World or now one of your projects, the SFU Public Square. You're emphasizing the ability of civil society to be a catalyst for change. Would you say that that's true? And if so, uh, could you give us some insights into what role you see for civil society in Canada and helping to clarify Canada's role in the world?
1: We led as you mentioned earlier, Canada's World, which was one of the most comprehensive dialogues, most extensive dialogue in Canada with Canadians on Canada's role in the world. And as I said, we were trying to create a new narrative. And that narrative, I had not expected to hear a consensus as we went across the country. We engaged 10,000 people face-to-face, another Mm -hmm. 200,000 online, And there was a real narrative that emerged. And it, it first began by looking at what Canada's values, our interests, and our assets were in the world. And and then it looked at, based on that, what was our narrative. And um, the number one part of that narrative was we want Canada to lead by example. We don't want Canada to go out and make strong pronouncements and promises that it can't make. Mm. We want it to lead by example. And based on some of the assets, um, Canadians felt that there were some areas that we could really begin to look at. One, uh, we could really embrace our diversity Mm -hmm. and look at our globally connected Canadians as an asset base and really build out from that. That pluralistic society that we have, and I know Mosaic Institute is is sort of at the forefront of really tapping into that that asset, that those globally connected Canadians, and um, so that's a big imp- important part. But there needs to be more of that. I think that there needs to be more of an engagement in who Canada is and what position we play in the international arena and why that's important. And I just don't hear that conversation going on in a lot of arenas. You you.
0: Touched on pluralism when you were talking just now, and I, I wanted to pick up pick up on that point, because as you said, the Mosaic Institute is very involved in in trying to harness the the uh, the assets, the the networks, the ingenuity of diasporic Canadians to to achieve great things in the world, uh, and I think our experiment with pluralism, arguably, is among the most successful, if not the most successful in the world. It's far from perfect, but I, the fact that we're able to uh, enjoy such diversity and live side by side in, in, in peace and, and, and relative stability is really quite, I think, enviable for most of the planet. So we have something, I think, to share. Do you think that the creation, the recent creation of the Office of Religious Freedom uh, within the Department of Foreign Affairs, that was so received so so uh, controversially by by the media and by commentators, people who said that uh, it was actually a, a, a cynical ploy by the government, that it was that it risked dividing human rights and giving precedence to one particular human right over other human rights and yes freedom of religion is important but so is freedom of the press and freedom of expression and freedom of assembly and rights shouldn't be divided or do you think that something like the office of religious freedom is maybe uh an experiment in exporting canadian pluralism i'm just curious Hmm. to know your thoughts on that
1: so it's a tough question i i'll to be honest i haven't thought about it it was not a debate i got into or or followed closely when it emerged. Um, I uh, I always look at the context in which these things are created, and I remember sitting down as I was preparing, f- I met with uh, some of the members of the Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, and, and I remember one member saying to me, I don't understand why we were giving money to non-Christians. And I thought wow. that that was a very odd thing for a member of my Parliament to say, uh, and especially somebody that sat on the Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs. And and so I'm always looking at the context in which um, policies emerge. So on the one hand, um, Canada has always valued religious freedom. Mm-hmm. We, in fact, provide charitable status to those that advance um, religious uh or advance their beliefs in yep. some way. They actually get preferential recognition in our tax system through charitable status. So we've always valued it. Um, I hope that we would value it as we would value any human right. We've always been a strong, up until recently, I would say, a strong advocate of human rights in the international arena. I'm I am puzzled by why this over other. Initiatives, um, but I'm not. I would need to. I would need to understand the intention behind it, mm-hmm. the programming, where the funding is going, um, who is in in charge, because it could be a very positive development too. I, I just don't know enough about it to mm-hmm. to be able to um, argue. But I always do look at the context, yeah. um, and I do get concerned at times that there is. Um, a context that's disturbing, where we're not seeing a separation of uh, church and state in the way that we expect to see in a very strongly secular society. Right. Um, and so I'm, I'm puzzled by that.
0: Let me ask you another question about civil society, because really you've probably done more thinking and talking about this than almost anyone else that I know of in Canada. How is it, with the multiplicity of actors from ngos and the academy and and community organizations grassroots movements individuals how can we differentiate the white hats from the black hats not all civil society is inherently good or virtuous or altruistic and i'm wondering first of all how do we differentiate the good from the bad and second of all in the absence of a more precisely articulated or delineated national foreign policy, do we risk? Uh, are are we are we creating risks by not having some way of differentiating the good influences from civil society from the bad? Have we have we thought about it enough before we I, open the system? Hmm.
1: I'm not sure. I mean, it wouldn't be a job I'd want to try to define who's good and who's bad. What I think is also important, though, when we're looking at Canada's role in the world, and especially in the context of diaspora communities, I think one of the things that we have to recognize is that communities come, people come from different countries, often from conflict zones if they're coming as refugees and in some, some cases immigrants, and they come out of very harsh circumstances. And there might be fairly highly polarized political situations that are very hard to break free of. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we have here, perhaps in some situations. I know my friends in Sri, Sri Lanka used to say, "God, you go to Canada, and it's like Sri Lanka 30 years ago. You get mo- more polarization uh, in Toronto than you do in in, in some pockets of of, uh, of Sri Lanka because because the the um, the perspectives that people came with out of a conflict might be very still, right. very fresh. Like so they, they congeal at the ch- point of entry. Exactly, right. and they haven't had a chance to evolve. So I think that there's a responsibility of knowing and understanding there are complexity of players who have, may have multiple alliances who are from diaspora communities, and to be aware of that, and to be, to educate oneself about that, to educate oneself about what those different kinds of perspectives are and the nuances. Of those and to also know that there are some within those communities uh, that may not have Canada's best interests at heart um, and so I think it's important to know and understand that so that's one of the things in yeah. terms of Canada's role in the world and working with diaspora communities being aware but I think that those are those are very minor players in the overall die sport community, very minor players. One of
0: the, the things that the Mosaic Institute is currently involved in is, is researching this whole question of whether and how and to what degree Canadians bring with them uh, the residue of historical conflicts that are often the reason mm-hmm. that they leave their, their countries of origin. Uh, certainly... You know my, you know my own father, who was Irish, was very happy to get away from the troubles in Ireland when he came to North America. That was one of his considerations. And I think that you mentioned Sri Lanka. Uh, you know, there are there's a whole litany of countries that uh, have been quite significant source countries for immigrants to Canada because Canada offered a safe mm. alternative to whatever was going on at home. If, if you had to imagine or surmise or explain what it is about, about living in Canada that makes it possible for so many people from so many different parts of the world, including different factions and, and different people that represent different sides of, of different conflicts, how are they able to live side by side cheek by jowl here in Canada and to do so relatively peaceably yeah. and to just get down to the business of borrowing each other's snow shovel mm-hmm. and, and living their lives as Canadians. Or,
1: or umbrellas, in the, case or umbrellas of in the
0: case of Vancouver. Ooh, yeah. Back home, it's yeah. snow, shovels. <laughs> it's snow shovels. What is it about Canada that makes it possible for pluralism to exist, do you think?
1: I think one of the things that's interesting is we did an um, a poll actually looking at Canadian values. And and we oversampled uh, for Canadians, foreign-born Canadians. Mm -hmm. So we were really looking at, was there a difference in how they would identify Canadian values? And we saw no difference. Mm -hmm. There was no perceivable difference in what they identified as Canadian values and what a second or third or fourth generation Canadian would identify as Canadian values, which I thought was really interesting. I think that people come and that they are seeking a certain kind of lifestyle that is away from the conflict, that values and respects both individual and collective rights, that values and respects their privacy and and their freedoms. And, And I don't, it's very, very few times have I seen the desire to see that conflict recreated in this country. And so it's a chance to start over um friends of mine who have come from other countries mean, even my own family irish as well um coming over there was a part where you know you get the irish and the english and the in the family or the protestants and the catholics in the family at the same time and you know you'd see some sparks fly that lasted about five or ten minutes before everybody was toasting each other and you mm-hmm. know in the celebrations and so there's there's um I don't know. We get to be who we want to be. We get to be our best selves in a a safe and secure and stable. I think a lot of why people um, are able to function the way they are is because there is a sense of security and stability in Mm. in our political culture, and our economic culture. Mm. Uh, And they want the best. And they want the best for their children. Now, on the other hand, there is a disturbing trend going on in this country, and uh, it's something that we've looked at pretty closely in the last year with SFU Public Square is that there are increasing numbers of enclaves being created. I think there are 240 of them in the country now. Uh, I think that's four times the number that was here even 10 years ago. 120 of them are here in the Lower Mainland of Vancouver. Uh, So almost half half of the enclaves that exist in, cultural enclaves, that exist in Canada or here in our Lower Mainland, and research that the Vancouver Foundation did um, was really looking at how, um, looking at social isolation and in, in urban isolation. And the number of people who felt quite isolated, who who, you know, it was above 70 percent people that didn't talk to their neighbors or didn't have friends, you know, over 60 percent who didn't have friends outside of their ethnocultural group. And the sense of feeling of isolation and disconnection is, is alarming. It was certainly alarming for many of us when we looked at the research here in Vancouver, and it's clearly a, an area where we have some work to do of really trying to be, bring bridge those intercultural relationships, um, and so that people aren't isolated in cultural, ethnocultural lives.
0: And is one of the ways that we can bridge, build bridges between those communities the use of dialogue. One of your current hats that you wear, you have several, but you are a, a, a dialogue fellow here at Simon Fraser. I wonder if you could just talk just for a minute about what you see as the role of dialogue in, in breaking down some of those silos that, that persist here in, in Canadian society.
1: It's intre- I'm at the Simon Fraser University Center for Dialogue, which has been around for over 10 years now. And it's, it's a very unique space in uh, academia because it really focuses on the practices and scholarship of dialogue. And integral to dialogue is a belief that, that people come, they don't come to debate ideas. There's actually, you're there to find the center of an idea. Uh, you're there to build on what other people learn. I'm actually a trained debater. It was a big step for me to really start to look at the world uh, through a lens of dialogue. It really meant leaving your oppositional mindset at the door and really embracing a process of learning and understanding and building on uh, what others think and have to offer. Uh, so we believe at, at SFU that dialogue is a very potent force for, for social change. and Canada's world, the initiative was a dialogue-based initiative. It was the largest deliberative dialogue process in um, Canada at that point, and um, by deliberative it means you don't just bring citizens together to generate ideas, you bring them together to look at ideas and options and trade-offs and debate and discuss and really find a way forward that they can all feel comfortable with. and um, And and dialogue has uh, some wonderful characteristics in the sense that I now don't host a meeting unless I know I'm going to see different viewpoints in the room. I don't Mm. just have a meeting with the converted that I'm not going to learn as much from that meeting. I really need to pursue and probe how other people think. Today is a perfect case in point. We have a, a major issue here in the downtown east side around the gentrification of the downtown east side, and and for some are a serious serious lack of social housing mm-hmm. and not enough commitment. So while there's this gentrification, we're losing social housing, and yet as new social housing is being built, the gentrification is is also displacing um, existing. Uh, what are called SROs, social housing. So we had a packed room today, and we had expected it to be a huge screaming match, which is what happened. Uh, We were prepared for that. It wasn't that at all. Mm -hmm. It was people sitting down, talking, hearing each other, listening, realizing how nuanced and complex the issues are and how much. And one of the recommendations is, let's now have another conversation. Let's put it in the heart of the downtown east side. So let's go to Carnegie now, and, and let's all go down there, not expect the downtown eastside residents to come to SFU. Let's right. go in to the right. downtown eastside now. And
0: do you think um, that same kind of approach uh, could be used more effectively in bringing ethnocultural communities together around issues of foreign policy so that they're able to find, as you said, the center of of questions that might divide them or have once divided them? I mean,
1: it, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, and we could learn a lot from the different kind of dialogue that occurs from other countries as well. I mean, I, I, I think I learned most of my training came out of the Philippines and mm. out of Nepal and, you know, in South Asia, and where I would always, I would characterize you always had to go through a period of intense debate before you got to the dialogue port portion in, in, in some of the work I did in South Asia. In Latin America, um, I think that we can learn from different communities, too, uh, different ways, First Nations communities, right. and how they, I mean, that's a very dialogue-based, at least on the West Coast, many of the West Coast nations are very dialogue-based in how they approach uh Issues, so I think it's a fabulous way of working. Um, I think that that uh, there is a place and room for the gamut of approaches to social change, everything from advocacy to lobbying to protesting. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm increasingly interested in finding those spaces that are more dialogue centered, where where really we respect each other and really listen and learn. And I think that's the exciting space of social change. Yeah.
0: So we started this chat uh, with your assessment of Canada's role in the world today. Uh, the word "shrub" was mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> the word "fossil," but tell me, uh, all things considered, would you say that if Canada wants it and wants to embrace it, that this is still Canada's world, and that we have an opportunity to uh, to contribute in? in particularly constructive and meaningful ways to a more peaceful world because we're Canadians and because we're attached to a particular uh, set of values and practices as a pluralistic society? Or is that is that just wishful thinking?
1: It's never wishful thinking to want the best out of what um, we as a group of people who reside in a geographical location and call ourselves a country want. I think that that... Um, I will always be an optimist and always want to see that uh, we are reflecting not just our values but our interests and, and advancing our assets in the world. I, I, I'm not so naive to believe we don't have really important interests. We need to have interests in the world in terms of how we operate. Um, I'm actually I'm trying to step aside and really look and try and understand, for example, with the current administration, really understand their thinking and the pressures that are on their plate and how they're trying to see if I can understand it better. And, and, and I'm looking at it and I'm saying, okay, I, I understand now why they're, I'm glad in a sense that they're reaching out to really develop a relationship with China, a more knowing and knowledgeable relationship with China, with India, I understand that they they need to do that from an economic perspective, but for many other reasons as well. Um, I respected uh, the work. I respected the work that we've done on the banking scene internationally. Um, I'm hopeful that with more experience in the international arena and, and, and part of the problem is I think we've had an administration that hasn't had a great deal of experience in foreign policy, and I think they're gaining it mm-hmm. that with more experience more exposure more recognition of what it means to be an international player, to have credibility to be able to leverage as a small middle power your 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 potential um, that we'll see better policy um, I'm hopeful.
0: I'm John Monahan. Thank you so much for listening. Keep in touch with us on Twitter at Mosaic Institute, like the Mosaic Institute on Facebook, or visit us online at www.mosaicinstitute.ca.